Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, owner of uh, Circle Social Inc., a strategic marketing and growth firm within the behavioral health and addiction treatment space. Today, we're talking with Kevin Tager. He is a partner over at Mertz Tager. They are an M&A, or a mergers and acquisitions firm, uh, within the behavioral health space in particular. So we have a lot to talk about, right? There's been a lot that has changed just in the past two years um, in terms of what's happening in the behavioral health addiction treatment space for mergers and acquisitions. And so we get pretty deep into all of that, but before we get started, I wanna hear from our, our great sponsors, Soberlink. Professionals like those that listen to the Recovery Executive Podcast know that technology-assisted care is improving all aspects of healthcare. Addiction treatment is no different. Soberlink is an accountability tool that's helped thousands of people in early recovery. If you haven't heard of Soberlink, it's a discrete alcohol monitoring system with real-time results and reports. You can improve your client's outcomes with the latest technology recommended by four out of five treatment providers. For a limited time and for Recovery Executive Podcast listeners, you can get a free Soberlink device by visiting www.soberlink.com free. So Soberlink is really a great accountability tool, uh, especially for people struggling with alcohol. And as we know, you know, in the aggregate across the U.S., you know, almost 50% of people coming into treatment overall are still uh, struggling with alcohol as kind of their, their primary drug of choice. So it's a great accountability and awareness tool to help both individuals and providers. We're talking with Kevin today, and, you know, from our end, we're, we're quite involved with the space nationally, right? We work with smaller providers. We work with some of the largest national providers in the space. We help out private equity in terms of due diligence and trends and looking at the space overall as well. So we have seen a lot change just in the past year, year and a half um, from kind of a high level national trend view. And we've seen a lot of sophistication come into this space, both in terms of the operators and providers that are out there, but also in terms of financial backing and what people are looking for. You know, just three years ago, you would see people go in and purchase a facility without a lot of due diligence, right? They might just look at the financial numbers and that doesn't happen anymore. People understand the marketing a lot better. They understand the sophistication of the marketing that's needed. So if you're going into a facility and all you see is revenue from just business development or just SEO or just AdWords, right? If it's just one channel, that's already, they know that's not gonna be a good buy and they're not gonna look at it. They're much more sophisticated on the clinical end. That was something that a lot of um, financial backers and sponsors and private equity did not understand before. So they just looked at the numbers. They just looked at financials and maybe maybe a little bit of the marketing piece. Um, but now they, they're not. They understand the clinical much better. And so we see a lot of money, a lot of buyers waiting in the wings. They are not moving forward with purchases because they feel that there just aren't the right level of centers or the right quality of um, operators to be purchasing at this time. And so people are being asked to level up, right? And that's obviously where we get a lot of our business from on the consulting and the marketing end is we're helping people level up. 
that is probably the biggest change that we've seen. So there's a lot of individual pieces that we'll talk about, and Kevin has some great insights into how the process works, what timelines are, what things buyers are looking for, what the red flags are that are gonna turn buyers away, what national trends are that we're seeing. We're gonna talk about all of that. It's a really good conversation. I just kinda wanna highlight the fact that there is just a, a much higher level of sophistication overall in terms of what almost everyone's looking for. Um, so you have to really know your business. You have to really know the market, both where you are regionally as well as potentially nationally, right? To see where the trends are going. And that's going to determine whether it's a good time to sell, what your valuations are gonna be, and how well you can prepare your business for exit strategy. Um, or if you're looking to buy, you know, what you should be looking for in an acquisition, you know, what's important. So really good conversation. I wanna let Kevin kind of take it from there. So with that, let's jump in. Hey Kevin, welcome to the show, appreciate it. Wanna introduce yourself a little bit and tell us about your firm? Hey Nick, I uh, certainly appreciate the invitation. Uh, Merch Taggart's a, a small merger and acquisition firm that is is really uh, very vertically and niche focused on, on two verticals. One is, is home care and hospice, and the other is behavioral health. Um, I used to own a, a home care company that my current partner helped me sell about nine years ago. So I, I come at things from a little bit different perspective than, than a lot of M&A firms being a, a previous owner. Um, you know, and then we got it doing that. I sold my company about nine years ago and been doing mergers and acquisitions ever since and got into behavioral health about uh, six or seven years ago at this point. And I've really spent 100 percent of my time on behavioral these days. And really, we focus on companies, and when we say behavioral, we're, we kind of focus on, you know, substance abuse, traditional treatment centers, mental health um, clinics or psych hospitals, uh, MAT, which is, is certainly a subset of, of substance abuse, and then we also do some eating disorder and, and autism stuff. And, and we focus on companies with generally two to $100 million in, in what we call enterprise value or selling price. Um, so that's, that's kind of the, the two-minute infomercial on us, I guess. And can you define that a little bit? What does selling price or enterprise value mean to you? Is that top-line revenue? Is it EBITDA? Well, the, the selling price is, is generally a function of both revenue and EBITDA. Um, more, it's generally more tied to, to EBITDA, but certainly you know, buyers will look at the revenue to see that you know, it's not out of whack. If you get, if you get somebody that's wildly profitable, you don't, you don't see it as much as you today as you did uh, several years ago where you know somebody's got a 40 percent 50 percent bottom line you know when you start putting a multiple of that it starts becoming a multiple of revenue and you know that that scares scares buyers a little bit too so that that answer your question sure um maybe we should kind of start there before we get into a high level overview of what's happening in the space so if someone's looking to kind of understand the value of their company how would you help them understand that formulation you know, generally we look at a host of factors and, and it really kind of comes down to EBITDA, which uh, for those that are unaware, it sounds a whole lot more complicated than it really is. Um, stands for earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization. Um, and, and so really, if you think about looking at your, your profit and loss statement, uh, you know, out of QuickBooks or whatever financial system you, you use, you really look at your net income and then you, you kind of add back if your accountant has done any depreciation or amortization items, which are really just non-cash charges that accountants use to try and reduce your taxes. 
So those are added back to really increase your, your net income. And then if you've got any interest payments or your C-Corp and you're paying taxes through the company, we, we'd add those back as well. Um, and, and so that's that's really how we arrive at EBITDA. Um, really, though, with, with most privately held companies, what we're trying to get is adjusted EBITDA and not just EBITDA. And, and really the difference is you can get EBITDA in a public company. You can go to Yahoo Finance or, or whatever your favorite financial site is and get what a company's EBITDA is. But with a privately held company, a lot of times people run, you know, personal charges through there, whether it be their cars or their trips or they're paying a non-working spouse or kid. You know, we generally want to add all that stuff back as well to come up with an adjusted EBITDA. So, again, that's kind of increasing the number that will ultimately put a, a multiple to. And let's just for easy math, say the adjusted EBITDA is, you know, $2 million and the, the multiple that we're going to put to this particular company for, for whatever reason is a five. That means the enterprise value or selling price is is about $10 million. Now, you know, the multiple is really where kind of the more art comes in into, you know, how, how do you value a company? Because there's so many different ways to, uh, you know, that, that buyers get nervous uh, about companies and, and really buyers are, you know, they'll put a higher multiple to a company if it is seen in their eyes as something that's less risky. The, the lower the risk, generally the higher the multiple, the higher the risk, the lower the multiple. Um, and I'm not trying to get too technical on a, on a phone call here, but really the multiple is just kind of an inverse of a return, you know, so a 10 multiple is a 10% return. A five multiple is a is a 20% return that the buyer is looking for. So they're looking for a higher multiple if um, if they put a lower excuse me a higher return if they put a lower multiple to it. You know, and there's there's so many different ways that uh, you know buyers will put a multiple. It really depends on kind of the, the type of business you're in. You know, your payer sources, how you're doing your marketing. You know, how clinically compliant are you? Um, you know, those types of factors. Yeah. A couple of years ago, I mean, you were seeing 10 plus in multiples, but what would you say the, the range is now? Are you talking for residential inpatient treatment, outpatient, MAT? What do you, what do you, what do you kind of? Yeah. Good question. Why don't we just kind of run through them, you know, and what are you seeing on your end in terms of residential versus outpatient versus MAT? Okay. Um, you know, generally speaking, I am I am kind of loath to give multiples just just in a vacuum, and, and I'm happy to do it in a second with 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 a couple caveats, I guess. You know, one of the things that that you can also do with a multiple is you can really manipulate the multiple, um, you know, based on your time frame. So if if a company is really growing rapidly, for instance, um, you know, the the trailing 12 multiple, which which means the last 12 months multiple um, or EBITDA, maybe say $5 million. But if they're growing really fast, if you look at maybe their six months annualized, maybe it's seven or $8 million in EBITDA. So, you know, what are you applying the multiple to is, is the big thing. Um, you know, in many cases, we will, we are successful in getting buyers to put a multiple to kind of what we call a pro forma number, meaning a, a forecasted number. So, you know, what is the multiple in, in that case, if you're putting it to a number that hasn't happened yet? Um, so sorry, I got to give those disclaimers a bit, but, um, you know, with that being said, you know, I think the payer sources matter a lot too. So if you look at say an out of network treatment center, um, you know, on the, on the smaller scale, you know, maybe a a million dollars in EBITDA or so, 
you know, I'd generally say the market right now is probably a three to five X um, for those. And in many cases, that may not make sense for the for the seller to sell just because it might make more sense for them to keep them, keep the, the treatment so they can make more money over the long run. Um, you, you get a little bit bigger on that uh, front. You, you may be able to get a higher multiple, you know, a five, six, possibly a seven for the for the right opportunity. Um, you know, now if it's an in-network provider on the smaller side, maybe it's, it, maybe it's four to six, um, and then a bigger one could be six to nine. And if it could be a you know a platform, you can get a competitive situation going. I still think you can get you know possibly a a, a ten plus if there's some MAT um, involved, but I think it would have to be you know the right situation in a in a very competitive process. Um, MAT is is really kind of a whole different animal right now. There's 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 somewhat of a shortage of sizable MAT companies for buyers to buy. So when one comes to market, uh, they're generally very very highly competitive processes uh, with both strategic buyers, uh, meaning people that are already in the space, or financial buyers, you know, private equity looking to get into the space. Or a combination of you know strategic buyers that are that are owned by private equity, and that's that's really kind of probably the more common case, really. Um, you know, smaller ones of those can you know go from you know six to eight to you know larger one that can be a platform could you know could be nine to a, a ten plus, and, and you know, certainly some of the larger ones can be in the in the low teens at this stage in the in the market. Okay, well that's all good information I think for everybody because it has you know fallen I think and like you said we we've seen um, an uptrend in the MET just because of the competitiveness I think on your end are you guys ramping the buy side and the sell side or just one or the other? You know, ninety five percent of what we do is is really on the sell side. Uh, we we've done one buy side for a family office in the space that was looking to deploy about five hundred million dollars. We helped them deploy about a uh, hundred million or so, and then they they you know, kind of changed, pivoted a little bit with just some of their, their investments. But um, yeah, so most of the work we do is, is sell side. And frankly, I really prefer the sell side versus the buy side. Okay. So let's kind of go back to a higher level overview then. So we talked a little bit about what the multiples are looking like these days, but what's happening in terms of just general overall, you know, M&A activity within the addiction treatment behavioral health space right now, um, say in the past 12 months? Well, so I, I think there's different pockets. I think, you know, as I, as I mentioned, the, the MAT is still super hot, and, and I, I don't see that changing for, you know, you know, a variety of reasons. I think the, the payers like it, and, and not to get into a clinical philosophy here, but just give you some of the reasons why, you know, the payers like it. It's, you know, kind of a lower cost and uh, longer-term care, generally speaking. Um, I think there's a lot of government dollars. A lot of the Medicaid dollars are, are going towards MAT at this point. So, you know, that's still a, a pretty attractive market. Uh, we're seeing lots of startups in that space as well, which I, I think over the next couple of years will, um, should be interesting to see how, how they do. Um, the residential treatment market, I, I think, you know, the out-of-network stuff is still tough. I mean, that, that's a tough tough sell right now. I do feel like the, the industry peaked about uh, 18 months ago or so, 18, 24 months ago, right about the time Summit uh, traded to, to Lee Equity and FFL Partners, in my opinion, that was kind of the height of the market. Um, and, and since then, it's it's it softened a bit. Uh, I do think late 2020, it's, it's going to come back. I don't think the need's going away. I think, you know, we're starting to see people stabilizing a, a bit, um, kind of coming with to, to grips with some of, somewhat of the new norm. So I do think, you know, late 2020, we're going to see, you know, traditional residential 
uh, treatment. Um, I don't know that I want to use the word hot, but, but become attractive again to certain buyers. I think the outpatient um, is still hot in, in traditional treatment. I think that's, that's a little bit more challenging to find, you know, outpatient centers of size, but, but uh, we're starting to see some of those as well. So I think that's, um, you know, still going to be uh, attractive for the foreseeable future. I think just more broadly speaking, within behavioral, I think eating disorder is still very attractive right now, as, as well as uh, autism is, is red hot. So, um, you know, I, I think those, those two will continue to be for the foreseeable future as well. Why do you think that uh, a traditional, you know, inpatient residential style rehab you know, might come back in the next year or so? You know, I just don't think the need's going away. And, we, and we've seen a lot of, um, you know, a lot of places close. And, and I still think, you know, we're probably not quite done with that yet. But, I, you know, we, we're talking to a, a number of providers around the country that, um, you know, are, are still struggling. But we're talking with a lot of them that are, you know, are doing well. And the, and the ones that seem to be doing well, you know, we're actually in, in process of, of working with the billing company right now. And, you know, so we've, we've seen a lot of data from a lot of uh, treatment centers. And the rates over the last three years have been pretty stable um, as far as whether it be detox or res or outpatient, you know, the amount that the providers are getting, the, the biggest challenge we're seeing is in people filling the beds. And so out-of-network providers that are still filling the beds are doing fine. I mean, they're still making a you know, ton of money. Um, it seems to be the ones that are struggling a little bit more, you know, obviously the ones that are filling the beds, but, but maybe some of the ones that you know, I mean, we got too many detox beds and, and not enough outpatient. You know, that detox level of care is so expensive for the provider to keep, especially if they're not filling the beds, that, um, you know, to, to me, that, that's the ones we're seeing that are, are struggling a bit. You know, somebody's got 50, you know, 100 detox beds. I mean, that's a lot of detox beds to fill. So, so yeah, I, I, I think that some will still, still struggle, some will still go out of business, some will pivot and maybe move to more of the outpatient and maybe still keep some of the detox, but maybe not as many beds, which will help them lower their costs and, and be more financially viable. Yeah. Those detox beds are, are just very hard to keep full just because there's such a high rate of turnover. In addition, you know, you're looking at seven day windows, sometimes less. So, you know, 50 yeah. beds, you're turning over seven times in a month. <laughs> That's a lot of patient volume. You that, that, that is a lot of beds that you've got to fill. I think some of the, the, the well-funded competitors are, are hurting maybe some of the more traditional treatment centers as well. Some of the, you know, larger providers that, you know, have got a couple hundred million dollars backing them. They can afford to take some of those losses while they, while they build their programs. You know, you think about, you know, the RCAs of the world, they, I think they've made a pretty big impact in the, you know, the Northeast. I think they've got close to a thousand beds at this point. So, I mean, that, that's a lot of beds that, uh, you know, weren't there, you know, two or three years ago. Right. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of beds coming in. Um, from your perspective, do you think there's a good number of beds, whether it's based on population size or just geographic areas? Um, because it, you know, RC is a good one where they, they build a lot of beds, right? Their minimums like a hundred beds, almost 120 per facility, which is a lot more than the vast majority of providers out there. But do you just have any comments along, along total size for that traditional residential model? You know, it, it seems to me, um, and this is more antidotal than, than evidence, So, um, but it seems to me that the ones that are a little bit more marketable these days are ones that are, you know, 20, 30, 50 beds, because you, you start getting to the 100 plus beds, it gets really difficult to 
fill that number of beds unless you've got, you know, the TV, the marketing, all the things that, you know, the, the deep pockets that somebody like an RCA has, you know, we're, we're marketing one right now that's, uh, you know, a couple hundred beds. It means great facility, you know, been in business a long time, great reputation, um, you know, but, but they're really struggling to, to fill the beds. And so um, where, you know, if they had a, a 50 bed facility, even, you know, even a little less might even be more ideal. It's certainly a whole lot easier for them to fill that number of beds than than you know a few hundred. So and that's kind of they've kind of got all levels of care too, um, you know. And they're and they're really not struggling to fill their their lower levels of care stuff. It's the, it's the higher levels of care stuff is really killing them. Right. Yeah. You know. I mean, what we've seen kind of across the U.S. is once you start passing that 400 bed mark nationally, it, it becomes really hard to keep the beds full. Now the traditional model has been more national, right? So it's a lot of fly-ins and destination rehab style investments where RCA is going more localized and regionalized. So they have a little bit of a different model and I'm curious to see how that continues to work out for them. Um, but I, I think that's a question mark, right? Is there's always gonna be a bed cap, you know? And if we look at our ultra competitive markets, especially if we go into like psych behavioral, right? Where they're running a lot of Medicaid and it's hyper local there's only a certain amount of, of beds that can exist in, in a given population area. And so I, I think we're gonna start to see those trends and people start needing to be a lot more strategic about where they're opening facilities. Um, that, yeah, I don't know if that realization has really hit a lot of people yet. Yeah, and you know, it's funny too, we, we've looked at some that are, you know, Medicaid heavy or people that have been traditional commercial and, and are adding some you know, different payer sources, you know, whether they be court system or traditional Medicaid and, and, um, you know, that, that's a bit of a different animal for, for some of them. Some of them are doing it well, but I think some of them are struggling just to, to make money at that model too, because it really is more kind of the, you know, the Walmart versus the, the Nordstrom type of talk. You got need a lot of volume. Yeah. You need a lot of volume and there's a much higher cost to it, which people don't realize with the Medicaid either. You know, you have all these costs. Like if someone falls and breaks their arm, if they're in your facility during a Medicaid contract, like you have to pay for that out of pocket, <laughs> that whole entire medical bill, you know, and then you've got to have people there with them because they're higher needs populations a lot of the time. So it's a lot more complex than uh, the traditional model. I think most facilities are used to. Now you're right. We, we've seen people starting to look at, you know, is there ways they can, you know, open up a primary care, you know, to, to kind of take care of some of those issues if they fall or they, you know, got a cold or or whatever. So, you know, kind of TBD on whether that's going to work or not. I think you still got to bet some of that stuff legally, frankly, but, um, you know, we'll see. Yeah, right. So let's go look. At, I, I kind of stick a little bit high level still um, and just maybe help listeners understand the, the market cycles a little bit and maybe the financial investors involved. So when you're saying that a uh, sector is hot, so MAT is hot, right? So we're seeing a lot of activity in that space. And we also saw a lot of activity in the space in the residential model, you know, just a couple of years ago. So, and then you said autism is obviously very hot, you know, as we say right now. Um, what do you think drives that? Can you talk a little bit about growth investing in the private equity firm cycle of buy and sell? Sure, I mean, you, you know, I think what drives that is, um, you know, more say, just take the MAT, for example, is there, there's somewhat a scarcity of larger providers. There's a ton of, you know, methadone clinics and, you know, to a lesser extent, kind of suboxone, you know, OBOT type providers that the office based, you know, prescription type of um, suboxone practices. But there's very few 
methadone providers of, of any scale. And so when you see one come to market, it's just very competitive because it's, it's you know it's kind of classic too many dollars chasing you know too few goods. And so I think that that's certainly part of it. And then I think you know every time you turn on the news, you talk about the opioid crisis. You know the the whole Purdue Pharma thing. You know was a you know big uh, big deal recently, um, which is you know one of the makers of OxyContin is you know basically filing bankruptcy. And, and so I think there's been more of a spotlight put on the space. And so I think there's a lot more government dollars that are going to go to that space. Um, you know, and again, not trying to get into clinically, you know, whether it's right or wrong or, you know, but I think, so I think that's part of it. You got a lot of do- government dollars that are, are chasing it. You, you don't have a lot of providers that have any scale. Um, and then you've got a lot of the um, commercial payers that are, really requiring MAT to be in network or starting, we're starting to see. And then some of the states, you know, like I think New York has to offer um, some sort of MAT option when they discharge somebody. So I think there's, there's a lot of different pressure, uh, you know, from a lot of different sources to provide more MAT, you know, even traditional 12 step, um, it was a pretty large buyer in the space that we've worked with that, you know, has historically been a, you know, 12 step, you know, um, abstinence guy, and his payers are, are are really starting to push him to to do more MAT. And so I think, and and then he said a couple things personally, where he said some friends that wanted him to talk to some kids, and in this this gentleman's in recovery. So, um, but before he could talk to him, you know, they, they the kids died of overdoses, and you know, so his take is, you know, even if they had an MAT alternative, you know, maybe they'd still be alive until we could kind of get them a little bit more abstinence based. So, I think there's a host of things where the MAT um, it, it's just being pushed from so many different angles. And so I think that's, that's one of the reasons that it's, uh, it's very attractive right now. So from the financial end, a lot of people are looking at the opportunities for growth. And obviously a lot of financial firms are looking for a certain level of return. And so their belief is that they can get a higher return in these spaces because they see the government money coming in they see the trends towards the payers pushing for it. They see the opportunity in terms of a lot of unsophisticated players. So there's ability to build larger platforms on it. And then I think maybe to help the audience understand is like, especially if you're looking at like private equity or even on the hedge fund end, often they're looking to buy and sell in, in a very short time window, you know, five to seven years. So they're looking to kind of ride a trend and, and they'll, they'll pay higher often at those times because they're ideally they're trying to sell that business before the wave crests and the trend goes back down. Um, would you say that's accurate? Yeah. I think one of the things though, one of the things that's made them, if you take like say out of network, um, companies that that's made private equity over the last several years nervous about private uh, about out of network companies is because when they think about their exit five to seven years you know is that you know is that revenue source sustainable um you know and and who knows so i i think they certainly look at exits but when they look at their exit five to seven years they got to sell it to either you know the public markets or to you know a large strategic buyer or a larger private equity group so um you know, I, I don't want to say they, they try and sell for the the wave crashes. I think they try and build a business that is sustainable over the long run. And so that's why they like in-network contracts. They like, you know, the, the MAT, you know, it keeps their, you know, you hate to say, but they get a lot of recurring revenue from the same customers. And, you know, and, and methadone, for example, is, is a very profitable 
um, you know, cost pennies and it's 10, 12, 13 bucks a day, depending on where you go. But, um, so I think those all kind of play into it, but, but yeah, I don't think they, they try and sell right before the crash per se, because they're selling to highly sophisticated buyers too. Yeah, that's a good point. So I I think something that I'm kind of angling towards here is, is helping people understand that trying to get in on, on what's considered kind of a growth trend um, in terms of opportunities that exist. Whereas if, you know, like we talk about on this show a lot of the time, kind of long term, right? And so I'm not looking five years out, I'm looking 10, 20 years down the line. And in those situations, it's really driven by our clinical care and our clinical value, because at the end of the day, that's what's going to make us successful. Um, and all these other factors come in in terms of what the payer mix is and, you know, how much of a operational platform can you build? Um, but I, I think what I see sometimes is that people will jump into a space and pile in because they, they see a lot of opportunity in the short term. Um, and you're right, you know, there does need to be that long term kind of perspective built in for the later sale. But I don't know if I, I see that level of um, analysis all the time. I, I see a lot of climbing you know revenue and climbing opportunity and people are like okay i can make 20 30 percent on this you know instead of you know 10 to 15 and i'm gonna just see what i can get done in a short amount of time and the money comes and flows to it i don't know what kind of comments you have along those lines yeah no i I think you're 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 spot on with the the clinical piece i i will say that um you know three or four years ago i think people were less concerned you know, I won't say, you know, not concerned about the clinical piece, but they, I think they've become hypersensitive to what's going on with the, the clinical piece because, um, you know, when you, when you talk about what can kill a deal, the, the clinical piece can kill a deal more so than the financial piece. If you're doing something that's, you know, fraudulent from, you know, a clinical perspective or not providing good clinical care and there's, there's a lot of risk there. You know, a buyer will walk away and no amount of money will, will fix that because they don't want the risk. So, you know, our experience with private equity is as they've gotten more ex- experience in the space, um, th- you know, they've always g- been concerned, you know, about clinical and things like that. But they've gotten more educated on what they should ask and what they shouldn't ask, and what they should look for. So I, I do think that um, nothing kills the deal quicker than, um, you know, failing clinical diligence. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think I want to make a comparison here and just get your perspective on it. But so if we look at the residential, we had this really fast rise, right? You had a lot of dollars, you know, competing for two or few deals and there was a lot of opportunity in the space. And now Matt, MAT seems to be mirroring, mirroring that, right? You know, we're seeing a very similar trend. So do you see that kind of trend crashing as well? The similar to what happened to residential in a couple of years? You know, I, I don't know that, um, you know, the map providers don't really have the the margins that, you know, the, the out-of-network residential providers had, you know, a number of years ago where they were making 50%. Um, you know, a lot of the map providers are still, you know, have healthy margins, but not crazy margins. They may be, you know, 20 to 30%, depending, you know, which I, I certainly think there's there's room for compression. Um but I, I don't see that one going away anytime in, in the near future because it's still kind of that, you know, more of an outpatient model and it's, it's still a much lower cost. 
um, than than you know traditional inpatient treatment. So you think there's more long-term opportunity with an MAT? Uh, yeah, I, I, I do believe it's it, it's going to be more sustainable. It's interesting. I think something else that I keep on the lookout for, obviously more on the marketing end of things, is that comp- competition and saturation levels, right? Is I mean, it's kind of what we saw happen with the residential model is, I mean, the way that we run our analysis is there's too many beds, um, especially if you're running like a flyaway model. There's definitely needs for local and regional beds, but we have more beds across the country than people seeking residential levels of care. Um, and so with the MAT model, I see, I almost see it almost as a, a territory grab at this point because people are spreading fast. They're trying to build locations as fast as possible, really. Um, but there's only one provider in each location. And so when they open a facility, it fills very quickly, you know, because there's just, they're filling a need. But eventually what will happen, just like with the residential rehabs, is more people will come in, competition will come in, um, more maybe more sophisticated competition will come in, and suddenly you have two or three clinics in a given location or nearby, and you're going to see uh, a drive. It's going to drive up marketing costs. It's going to drive up overall operational costs. You know, and, and I think that's that's something that I'm not sure people are looking at. You know that that is a uh, a very good point. It's funny. I, I had a conversation with a large strategic buyer um, last week, and you know they he was telling me that they have, they've uh, bought clinics in the past where you know say you've got three clinics in the area and they've kind of overpaid for a clinic just to get rid of some competition. So you know you're probably right. There there is going to be some point where there's some saturation. I know a lot of them. A lot of people we're talking to these days on the MAT side. I, I think the model is 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 pivoting a bit where it was you know, historically more of a kind of a dose and go. And I think, you know, more people are trying to wrap counseling around it, especially on the OBOT side, you know, which is, which is the, and I know, you know, but just for your audience, the prescription side where, where doctors are writing prescriptions, um, you know, really trying to wrap either mental health counseling, addiction counseling. Um, and, and we're even seeing a little bit of lab in, in some of those providers, which from an M&A perspective is, is okay as long as it's, you know, 10, 15% of the revenue, not, you know, not 40 or 50% of the profit like we've seen in, you know, years past and, you know, kind of billing at normal rates. Um, you know, so we're seeing some of them offer ancillary services to, you know, because I think it's, it's hard as an OBOT, the prescriber, to, to really make a ton of money just doing the OBOT. I think you've got to do some other stuff. For it to make sense. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the more sophisticated MET um, providers that we speak with, you know, it's all about incremental revenue, right? So where can we add on additional service here? You know, even if it's a doctor's visit or some kind of checkup care, um, like you said, the, you know, reasonable cost of urine screens, which is like, you know, 20, 30 bucks a cup max. Um, but when you're talking about, you know, 100, 200 patients, um, through a week, right, in an MAT facility, and you're talking about maybe making five bucks a cop, that's important revenue for an MAT clinic, whereas a residential center would be like, well, who cares? You know, um, so it's a different model. Sure. Well, and, you know, the, the the doctors that I've talked to in that space, in the MAT space, will say, hey, look, you know, we're, you know, we're prescribing them a drug. We need these lab results to see what their blood work looks like before we give them another drug, which, you know, I'm, I'm not the clinical one, but that one seems logical to me. And, and you know, most of them talk about following ASAM guidelines and, and that type of stuff. So, um, you know, I think as long as you're doing that, you're fine. Right. Right. I would agree. Okay. So kind of 
still staying at that higher level overview. So you mentioned strategic players. So you have people like we see Delphi is buying facilities, Summit's buying facilities, Bandian's still buying facilities, you know? So I think this is, would fall into your more strategic buyer category. How do you see their outlook different than maybe a, a private equity firm in the space? So, you know, we kind of break the market down into, you know, a couple of different segments of buyers. You know, you've got the, the public buyers in the space and, and really they're not very acquisitive right now. They're kind of, you know, facing some of their own challenges. Um, and then you've got, you know, strategic buyers. So somebody that's already in the space that, you know, wants to expand, you know, regionally or nationally, you've got private equity, which, you know, pretty, pretty self-explanatory. And then you've got, you know, really most of the buyers in this space are what I would consider kind of a hybrid. They're strategic buyers that are owned by private equity. So the, the buyers you just mentioned are all owned by private equity. Um, and so I think, you know, they're already in the space. I think that if somebody's looking for a new platform to enter the space, they're going to be a whole lot more, you know, cautious, want to do more diligence, going to really want to, you know, dig in and understand everything, you know, uh, almost ad nauseum in many cases, you know, private equity, you can never give them too much data. They love data. Um, where somebody that's a strategic buyer generally a little easier to get a deal done. They're already in the space. You don't have to explain to them what's going on in the market. You know, they're expanding for, you know, one reason or another. They want to, you know, add a, a geography. They want to add some payers. They want to add a niche program. You know, they, they want to, you know, add to their EBITDA so that, you know, if they're going to pay, say, a, a seven multiple for a facility. Um, and, and private equity gets very acquisitive when they're it, when they have a strategic buyer and they're going to go through a process themselves, let's say they pay a seven and they think they can sell themselves for an 11 or a 12, you know, whatever that EBITDA is, they're, they're making four or five turns for really doing nothing there. So kind of that arbitrage opportunity for them. Um, so they look at the universe a whole lot different than, than say a, a traditional private equity. They're already in it. Um, you know, oftentimes they're they're willing to pay more, maybe for a smaller player than uh, private equity. Private equity will, you know, often pay more for a, a platform because they want to get in the space. But you know, it's tough for private equity to overpay for a, a small one because just they're, they're you know same amount of work with, with less return. You, they can't put you know the dollars to work. Most of them don't have a shortage of capital right now. Right, right. Like you said, there, there's a lot of what's referred to as dry powder right in the industry. It's just money waiting in the wings because there aren't people aren't seeing the opportunities to buy um, good platforms or good facilities at, at good valuations, basically. Okay, so something you mentioned there actually that was kind of interesting is you were saying that a strategic buyer, so someone already in the space, like a, a larger facility would be willing to pay more than maybe um, a private equity firm coming in. And it just kind of reminds me back uh, the old Rockefeller days, right? You know, where Rockefeller would go and you'd buy up these really poor operational oil refineries, but just to limit the competition, you know, and it was worth it for him to pay a higher multiple just to get rid of it um, and eliminate that and be able to dominate the space in a way. So it's just, it's kind of occurred to me as you um, discuss that happening. And on the other side, on the sell side, would that ever make sense? Or do you help um, people looking to sell kind of evaluate, you know, the different options out there in terms of who they're trying to go to and who they're trying to sell to? Sure. You know, that's, I mean, that, that really kind of, um, our marketing efforts are wildly different for somebody that, you know, let's say has got a company that that's growing 
and they're doing a couple million dollars in EBITDA and, you know, they're really kind of that, you know, dynamic CEO that, you know, he or she really wants to grow the business long-term, but maybe doesn't have the, the capital or maybe just, you know, doesn't have the experience or business acumen to really kind of take it to that next level, you know, in that type of scenario, and, and they want to keep some equity. So they want to, you know, maybe sell 60% of the company and keep 40% of the company and use other people's money to, to grow the company. So, you know, that's a different marketing effort than, than somebody that says, Hey, look, you know, I just want to sell and go, I want to sell hundred percent. I'm tired. I want to be done. Um, you know, that, that's a different marketing, you know, in that case, a strategic or a private equity backed strategic is generally makes more sense. Um, not always. Now, if you've got kind of a second level of management that can, can run the business, sometimes, you know, that can be a, you know, private equity platform as well, but, but that's generally more geared towards a strategic buyer in that scenario. You know, private equity is generally, you know, back in the person, if it's a platform, they want to back this, you know, um, person to, to go out and use their money uh, to, to grow the company. And then, you know, from a, the, you know, the, the individual's perspective, it's, it's a bit of a risk diversification strategy too. You know, most of these you know, people that own a treatment center, and not always, but, you know, the largest asset they have is, is their business. And so if they can take, you know, some of the money off the table, use other people's money to grow it, and maybe really take it to that next level where it's worth more, you know, the 40% is worth more than the 100% is today. So, and that's really, you know, private equity's pitch. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, you know, kind of helping people understand that, that if private equity is coming in, you know, finding good operators and, and good executive level leadership across all levels of the organization is really, really difficult. Like you and I both know that that's what a lot of firms are looking for. So they don't want to go in and, and have to replace a team, right? They want to keep that operator there versus strategic buyers who, you know, might have a backbench they can pull in. Yeah. And I think that in this space, especially, you know, um, good season, you know, private equity backable leadership is in short supply for sure. Right. So you talked about it already, but I just kind of want to do it in one question, in one section here. Uh, what are buyers looking for in a good program? What are the key things driving valuation? Well, I, I think certainly, you know, a, a healthy bottom line, and but, but not too healthy. You know, at the 40, 50% scares them because they don't think that's sustainable. You know, 15, 20, 25 percent, I think, is, you know, good, a good number for a service based company that a buyer is going to see as sustainable over over the long run. You know, I think having that good second level of, of management, uh, regardless of the type of buyer you're selling to, you know, if you've got kind of a good team in place and, and the business isn't solely re reliant on, you know, the owner to for every decision and, and all the sales and doing everything. So I think that that's critical. You know, the, the clinical compliance, I think, is is important. Um, you know, more and more, you know, the marketing aspect is, is becoming important as well. And not just, you know, but, just, you know, sustainable kind of diverse, you know, marketing is, is becoming more and more important, I think, to buyers. They want to know, you know, not only are you filling the beds, but, but how are you filling the beds? And, you know, is that sustainable over the long run in their view? You know, those are, the, you know, the, the, the biggest. I mean, you know, some of the things that, you know, obviously you don't want a bunch of, of lab revenue. Some of the things, you, you know, none of the patient brokering, all, all that kind of stuff. I, I'm kind of skipping over just kind of assuming that, you know, th those are going to be deal killers. Yeah. And on the marketing end, maybe something to bring up is understanding that the 
the marketing that's driving inquiries and admissions into your facility should be owned in you know as much as possible so what we've seen is still seeing trends similar to patient brokering so they've moved away from paying for patients but they'll hire these third-party call centers or these third-party firms to just send them call volume or send them patient volume on a flat contract so they're you know they're trying to kind of get around the, the legalities there right but at the end of the day you don't own that marketing channel so the second that that company goes out of business or someone else pays them more money, like you're immediately cut off. You, you can't control that um, that marketing channel. And so from a long valuation standpoint or in terms of interested buyers, like they're not going to be interested in that style of marketing. I think it's something important for um, facilities to understand. Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree 100% with that. that. That's a tough sell from our end if somebody's doing that. It just makes it... Um... You know, again, it's that risk. Buyers are thinking about risk. What is the risk if, if, if that group goes away or they somebody else pays them more for leads or pays more for the contract? Um, you know, th- those could go away tomorrow. Yeah, right. And, you know, talking about that risk, you like you said, diversifying it. So having multiple marketing channels in place is important because AdWords was a perfect example for this space, but too many people were reliant on it. it the bottom fell out and then suddenly they crashed, right? Because they only had a single channel source and there's too much risk when you're that concentrated um, from a marketing standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. What about goodwill? So you're talking about marketing here and you're talking about these long-term streams. Um, do Does goodwill or reputation brand um, factor into the valuation conversations? You know, I, I think Certainly, it, it factors into whether a buyer wants to move forward or not. It kind of goes back again to that that risk of, you know, if, if you're known as a, as a treatment center that kind of cuts corners and you know maybe doesn't do this well or that well, um, you know, certainly it's going to damage your reputation. It's going to make you less marketable. But it's it's tough to put a a number to that. Uh, from our perspective, you know, that's almost kind of like a, a binary, you know, it, it makes the company either sellable or not sellable. Interesting. Okay. Um, so you mentioned a couple already, but what, what are some other things that you've seen just kill a deal? So you mentioned, you know, bad clinical and especially um, investment partners are getting more um, sophisticated about that. You know, they're actually starting to understand um, what that looks like. You mentioned obviously the basics like patient brokering. What else would be a red flag? You know, I think one of the things that, that really kills deals that people really, you know, probably don't realize in, until you, you kind of think about it and go through the process. But one of the things we talk about in one of the presentations that we give from time to time is, is trust. And, you know, breakdown in trust from either party is really one of the things that will kill a deal as quickly as any of the other stuff that we've talked about. And the reason being is if you think about from from both parties perspective, what the buyer is buying is intangible in many cases. Even if it's got a facility, you know, they may may or may not be buying the real estate. And, and in today's market, they're probably less likely to actually buy the real estate. So they're, you know, just buying the operating business. And, you know, if they don't trust that you're doing this, you know, ethically, honestly, and the information that you're giving them is true and correct, you know, they're probably not going to move forward with a deal even to, to get to the due diligence phase because it, they're going to spend a couple hundred thousand dollars to maybe a million dollars to get through diligence. And so if they don't trust you that you're an ethical, honest person, you know, that, that deal's not happening. And then, you know, conversely, if the seller doesn't trust that the buyer is actually going to close, because let's say you, you're a seller and you've got, you know, 10 offers and, you, you know, you narrow it down the top couple and you decide to go with, you know, buyer A, 
and buyer A, you need to trust that buyer A is not going to close is going to close before they you know try and tie you up for a period of time because you know as the process goes along as the seller you you lose a lot of control you're relying on the buyer to do what he or she is supposed to do to get your deal done so uh, you know trust is a, is a huge factor um, I mean perfect example when we sold our company we had five offers and we took the the fourth highest offer um, instead of the top offer because I just didn't trust that the it was, the other one was a private equity group. They weren't in the space. They didn't know the space. I didn't. I didn't think they. They had a much lower probability to close. So, we see trust as a, as a huge thing. Um, and sometimes overzealous attorneys, more so on the seller side. If, if you get an attorney that is not an industry expert, that really doesn't do M and A, um, you know, they, they'll kill a deal from from time to time. And that's that's less common, but. Uh, but it's really important to have a, an M&A attorney that, that does not only M&A, in my opinion, healthcare M&A, because it's got a lot of nuances that if you're you know, buying a widget company, you know, there's a lot of regulatory risk in the, in the healthcare landscape. So, yeah. Right. Well, that's all good ones there. What about um, preparation here and kind of walking through the process? So something that is wanted by, by most buyers and sellers is a certain amount of speed, right? They want to take their time and do due diligence, but also they want to get the deal done and, and they want to avoid risk. Like you said, they're dropping anywhere from a hundred thousand to a million dollars in the due diligence. So they don't want it to stretch out too long. And then suddenly something happens and the deal doesn't work out or whatever. So, you know, buyer um, sellers in particular need to be prepared. What do you recommend that they prepare before they even look at going to market? You know, I, I think you need to have kind of your in, internal house in order. Um, you know, your, your financials are really the biggest thing that the buyer is going to look at first. And, and if they're a mess and and they don't kind of tie back, uh, you know, to all the all the data behind it, uh, it's going to make it tough to sell. And and so I think, you know, we've, we've worked with companies for years. I mean, we sold a company earlier this year that we'd worked with for the previous uh, five years kind of giving them, you know, valuation guidance and, and, you know, saying, Hey, you know, look at this, look at that. Um, but so I think the financials are, are the biggest thing. And then, you know, along with financials are, you know, all the management reporting that goes by, it. Uh, you know, in, in the treatment center space, one of the biggest challenges we have is, is the raw billing data. And so if, if you use an outsourced billing company, you know, that's, that's certainly fine. But you want to make sure you're getting kind of all the raw billing data to, to back up um, because when a buyer comes in, they're going to basically validate that all your revenue ties back to, um, you know, buy line items. So it can be, you know, 10,000 line spreadsheet or, or, or bigger that it, it all ties back. So one of the challenges we also have is, is really getting good ancillary data, you know, tracking your census, all the billing data, you know, so it was billed, you know, this patient was billed at this level of care for these dates of service, the payment came in on this date, you know, the copay was paid on this date. And, and we're finding a lot of treatment centers specifically are kind of really underprepared for that second piece. Most of the books are okay in QuickBooks. It's just the backup data is, is generally some, somewhat uh, lagging. So, um, you know, we, we're working with a, a company right now that we're, before we go, go to these couple buyers, we're doing kind of our own, internal what we call quality of earnings really trying to validate that the um the revenue is what they say it is and and you know i i honestly believe these people are super honest i think the the revenue is i don't think there's any monkey business but we're struggling to kind of validate 
the the revenue just because there's been you know poor poor record keeping over the years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we see that all the time when we're on the consulting end of things too. Is you know we'll get statements like here's our CPAs or here's what we're spending on marketing or here's what we're doing clinically, and you get in there and it's completely different. <laughs> just yeah, not not because they're making stuff up, just because they don't have the tracking or the reporting in there um, appropriately to be able to to comment on those. And the expense side is usually easier to validate. I mean, that's usually you know much cleaner. It, it's the revenue side because in this space. You know, if you bill somebody fifteen hundred bucks, you don't know whether you're collecting, you know, twelve hundred or a thousand bucks or fifteen hundred dollars. So, um, you know, that's where where some of the and and the more data you've got to kind of support historically what you've been getting, you know, the the better you can make the case for yourself. And that's all bottom line money. Um, you know, the buyers hire an accounting firm to represent them, and so you need to make sure that you've got the data to support your argument. Because um, you think about it, if they come back say you're short. Five hundred thousand dollars in EBITDA, and it's a, you know, even to five multiple, that's you know, two and a half million dollars that you're losing on that deal. Right, right. Anything else on the prep side um, before they go to market? You know, I think it's it's important to kind of have a rough idea of what you you think it's worth um, be, before you take it to market. I mean, you know, a lot of times we get sellers that have preconceived notions of what they think it's worth, and sometimes it's low. More often than not, it's, it's, it's probably a little high based on kind of current market conditions. So I think it's important to, um, you know, have an idea, you know, whether it's us or somebody else to give you kind of a rough, and maybe it's, you know, a number of, of firms to give you a rough idea of, of what they think it's worth based on kind of today's market and, and your numbers and all the other ancillary things that we've talked about. Um, you know, most of the time you can get that done, you know, for free. Uh, most most firms will will do that as a kind of a you know lost leader to you know build a relationship over time, and you know I do I do it early. I mean if you were if you were not thinking about selling for a couple of years, um, you know do it now and get an idea if if you've got that you want to sell this company for ten million, and you know today it's it's only worth five. At least have kind of a roadmap of what you need to do to get there. Right, right. And that's a great. Um lead in there for the question of timelines, you know, so let's say I want to sell my business and maybe I'm not quite sure that things are in order. So from initially starting to talk with you, what's the timeline in that prep phase? And then what's the timeline averages, obviously, um, to maybe getting the sale done? Yeah, you know, I mean, so the, the, the prep time for us, I mean, it may be, you know, as I just mentioned, maybe years in, in some cases. Um, you know, and that's a bit of an extreme, you know, five-year process is, is a bit longer than most. Um, but, it, but it certainly can be, you know, multi-year. But from the time you say, hey, all right, I've got my house in order. I'm ready to sell. Um, you know, it, it's generally five to eight months. I mean, you know, sometimes can go to 12 if there's extenuating circumstances or a little longer. Obviously, that's never desirable. But, um, you know, it, it can certainly go longer than than that but five to eight i would say be typical if you've got your house in order you've got everything ready to go yeah that's great information i think it's just important for people to understand sometimes they think they can just put it on the market sell it you know get out whatever the situation is but the reality is that there's sometimes there's a year or more in the prep phase and then you're looking at you know a little under a year um to sell. yeah and and you know unfortunately most people you know the days of kind of easy money are in my opinion gone and i don't think you know cer- certainly the sophisticated buyers and, and if you're looking to maximize value you can probably sell at a very discounted rate you know kind of in a hurry 
at, at a you know at a cheap price, but certainly you're not maximizing value. And you know we're talking to people, we're trying to get them to you know obviously to, to think about maximizing value. And nobody's going to write you a check, um, you know, kind of a market rate check without kind of you know dotting the i's and crossing the t's. Right. Yeah. I mean, back in the day, you used to you used to see people buy facilities, you know, and they'd just look at the census, for example, and then they'd get in and 70 percent of the current census is all scholarships. <laughs> you know, people yeah. weren't doing due diligence, um, but that, that doesn't happen anymore, thankfully. No, I, I agree. Uh, so can you just walk us through the rest of the proper process then? So after the prep, um, what does it look like? What needs to happen throughout that that sale, do, that due diligence piece? Yeah. So, so, you know, the process from there, um, you know, and we've kind of broken this down into, into 14 discrete steps, which, you know, I won't get in here because that process, that, that's kind of an hour long talk in itself, but really, you know, the first four kind of pre-process getting your, getting your house in order, making sure your financials are in order. You know, you've got an idea of what you want to do. You want to, you know, commit to the process mentally, but once you say, Hey, all right, I'm ready to go. It, you know, from there, you know, whether again, whether it's us or somebody else, typically put together what we call the SIM or the book, the marketing materials. SIM just stands for CIM, uh, Confidential Information Memorandum. And really that's kind of the deck. You know, it talks about, it gives a history, a little bit of a narrative of the company. Obviously it's got financials in there. Talks about your, um, you know, level of care. It shows a lot of the, the trends, you know, whether it be census. You know, so it, it's, um, you know, it's typically a 30 to 60 page, you know, PowerPoint-ish type of, of document. You know, you want to give enough information, but not so much information that, you know, you're you're exposing yourself completely if it were to unfortunately get in the wrong hands or, or a competitor. But um, and so, you know, then you want to kind of, you know, market to buyers and you want to do it, obviously, in a confidential manner so that your your staff doesn't know about it. Your patients or clients don't know about it. Your referral sources don't know about it. So, you, you know, you try and send out a blinded teaser. So you may say, you know, West Coast, West Coast based, you know, treatment center available. $10 million in revenue, $2 million in EBITDA, been in business this long, does these types of things, et cetera, et cetera. You know, enough information not to, to let on who it is, but, you know, enough information you can generate information, interest from buyers. Um, you know, and then from there, you know, buyers will sign a confidentiality agreement um, where they can they can get access to to more information. And then we generally like to run a, a two-phase process, meaning that we'll call for, in, in the SIM, we'll put in, hey, you know, offers are due by, usually it's three to five weeks after they get the SIM saying, hey, just give us what's called an indication of interest. And, you know, it's typically a, a two to four page document that says, hey, we think the company is worth, you know, 10 to $12 million or whatever the number is. And the reason we like to do that is, you know, we don't want to waste a bunch of time if if we get say you know seven or eight offers that are in the 10 to 12 million range and then we get another seven to eight are in the you know three to four to five million dollar range we don't want to spend a lot of time we don't want to spend a lot of our clients time with the the, the people that are in the lower lower bracket and so from there you know we'll pick the 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 more attractive buyers we'll invite them in for for management meetings um which is kind of typically a two to four hour sit down. We kind of go through, you know, the, the business, the growth, the management team. And then from there, you know, we'll ask for, for LOIs, um, letters of intent. So that's, that's a little bit more formal um, document. The buyers have more information at that time. They can make a, a much more um, informed offer. 
and and really it's not uncommon for us as we go through this process for the lowest offer to be 30 to 40 percent of whatever the winning bid is so there's really a pretty broad range of offers in in most cases so you know we're obviously a little biased but we do feel like it's important to run a process so that you can kind of you know have the market tell you you know what the company's worth and and we don't put a price on it on a company when we go to market um you know, because, you know, we'll give our clients a number internally and say, hey, well, look, we think it's worth $10 million or, or whatever the number is. But we feel like it's important to kind of run that competitive process um, and, and let the market tell us. And, and if, you know, because if we put a process, let's say we put, we think the stretch number is 12. If we put that out there, um, you know, most buyers are not going to bid at, at kind of full price. They're going to try and bid somewhat, somewhat south of that. So in many cases, we get more than, than we're expecting when we run a competitive process. And then from there, you, you know, you, you select a, a couple of buyers to kind of beat each other up against, um, you know, ideally pick one. And, um, you know, if it's a larger transaction, you may be able to keep two going a little longer. But usually for kind of the lower middle market, you're going to pick one and then get into due diligence. And, and that can, you know, range from, you know, 60 to 90 days can be longer. If it's going to be longer than that, it's generally because the state is requiring something uh, to transfer the license, um, something that's beyond our control in many cases or the client's control your contract sometime, take a while to transfer, those types of things. Okay. Uh, and then I think the last question um, before we wrap up here is just any comments you have on, on DeNovo growth strategies. So obviously you're doing the merger and acquisition side of things, but people still build from scratch. Um, so just kind of any comments on, on trends in that direction? Yeah, you know, I, I think, you know, DeNovo makes a, a lot of sense in many cases. I mean, certainly a, a, a cheaper way to go. It kind of depends on what your goals are. But we're, we see, you know, fair amount of buyers that do that. And certainly, you know, I think that's a, a much more cost-effective strategy for maybe more the, the individual um, treatment center owner, unless they can buy something distressed. Um, you know, we are seeing kind of a you know, kind of the term Aquanovo, which is, a, you know, an acquisition slash de novo, basically buying the, you know, distress treatment center that's already got the licenses, maybe the payer contracts, the staff. And so it, you know, you, you pay a lesser price um, than you would if it was, you know, a traditional acquisition, but it gets you to, and, you know, you pay a little bit more than if you would, if you were doing it from scratch, but you get, you also get up and running maybe a year sooner than you would if you did a de novo. So we see, you know, some buyers out there that have done that successfully. And I think as, as some of these providers continue to struggle a bit, I think there'll be more of that out there as well. And, you know, in, in, in many cases, that's really a win for both parties because, you know, the alternative may be to shut down. Um, so if you can get something out of it and it's good for the buyer because it gets them to market sooner, then, you know, that that's truly one of those, you know, kind of win for everybody deal. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I think the hard thing is just sometimes getting the eagle out of there. <laughs> you wanna, you have a certain yeah. thing in your head about how much the business was worth, maybe you know, two years ago. Yeah, we're seeing buyers become a whole lot more real. I mean, sellers becoming a whole lot more realistic about what it's worth today, though. Right, right. Yeah, it took it took a little bit, but not too long. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for yeah. Sure. Yeah, come to terms with the reality when you're um, bleeding money. Yeah. Tends, tends to be the case. So, all right, well, Kevin, appreciate the time. Fantastic information for everyone out there. Um, if people want to reach out to you or just reach out to the firm, what's the best way to do that? Uh, they can shoot me an email at uh, Kevin, K-E-V-I-N, at Mertz, M-E-R-T-Z, Taggart, which is T-A-G-G-A-R-T.com. Or they can always call uh, office at 770-888-1171. 
All right. Well, thanks so much. We appreciate it. And as always, this is the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, and we'll see you next time. Thanks a lot, Nick. I appreciate the invite.